Episode 31 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 6.6, Nephite Eastern Campaign, Initial Reconquest, Battle Analysis, Third Battle of Mulek. The 6th century BC Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu said, quote, All warfare is based on deception. Close quote. Much of his famous book, regularly called The Art of War, instructs readers on how to present and use deception on the battlefield. The way of war that he and other strategists encourage is a dialectic of flow rather than collision. It is about the ebb and flow of battle, the yin and yang, if you will. I ask you to reflect on that famous symbol with the flowing black and white colors as a way to imagine what I mean by flow. Sun Tzu also instructs the following, quote, One who is skilled in making the enemy move does so by creating a situation according to which the enemy will act. He entices the enemy with something he is certain to want. He keeps the enemy on the move by holding out bait and then attacks him with picked troops. Therefore, a skilled commander seeks victory from the situation and does not demand it of his subordinates. He selects suitable men and exploits the situation. Close quote. In this episode, we will see a perfect demonstration of these 2,500-year-old military maxims executed by Moroni in and around the cities of Bountiful and Mulek. For those thinking that Joseph Smith must have copied the story of the Third Battle of Mulek, or even the Battle of Antipas' Fall from Sun Tzu, I want to point out that the first English translation of the Chinese Book of Strategy was made in 1905 in England, long after the first edition of the Book of Mormon was in print. The Third Battle of Mulek is one of the most complex battles that we have in any form of detail in the Book of Mormon. There are multiple moving parts, and many of the big Nephite names in the Amalekite War are participants. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The use of deception is critical to success of long-term military operations, No military commander has conducted multiple campaigns without making attempts to deceive the enemy as to the intent, timing, or location of forces. Deception was a part of the Eastern Theater in the Amalekiahite War before the return of Moroni and the initiation of the battle under discussion. For example, we are told in Alma 52.6 that Tiancum gave the impression of preparing for attacks even after he made a decision to conduct an entirely defensive campaign as he waited for further resources from Moroni. This perception of offensive preparation certainly gave an impression of strength to what we assume was a larger Lamanite opponent then occupying the city of Mulek. As we discussed in the previous podcast episode, this battle, as with the Battle of Antipas's Fall, was based off the Nephite strategy of the bait and switch, a strategy connected to the concept of deception. This deceptive tactic was Moroni's and Antipas's answer to fighting Lamanite armies defending cities. It seems that the Nephites, unlike their Lamanite counterparts, did not have a set method for assaulting cities, 
Therefore, Moroni wanted to fight battles outside the fortified walls of a city. Just because an army had a fortified position, remaining static inside fortifications was not a guarantee of long-term victory. Ancient walled cities were not large. They did not contain farms, orchards, or most sources of food for a large population. People needed to function outside the walls of a walled city so that the community could survive. An army defending a fixed fort could not simply remain protected within its walls and allow the opponent to move about outside the walls with impunity. It was both necessary and desired for the defending army to sally out and engage enemy forces and deny control of the ground to the enemy. The strength of the defensive position was that the commander could decide when to do so and when to remain protected within the fort. This allowed the defending commander time and protection to ensure that his forces faced a numerically inferior or surprised opponent at each encounter. He was the initiator of combat and therefore typically possessed the initiative in encounters. The situation described in the Third Battle of Mulich is an example of this general thinking. Moroni preferred to fight the Lamanites in open battle, and the Lamanites did not want to do so. The Lamanite commander also needed to deny any movement of Nephite forces to the south and past his position at Mulek in order to protect the other captured cities along the eastern coast of Nephite lands. All of this general thinking is important to understand why Moroni's strategy worked. As with all great strategies, Moroni was essentially relying on the Lamanites to do exactly as they wanted to do. Overview of the Campaign We last talked about Tiancum and the Eastern Theater in episode 28, or part 6.3 of this series. That was at the end of the 25th year of the reign of the judges. Amalickiah led his wonderfully great army into the eastern areas along the seashore, and he captured six cities, the last of which was Mulek. Amalickiah continued from Mulek toward Bountiful, where his army was headed by Tiancum and driven back. Tiancum then took a servant, and they crept into the Lamanite camp, where Tiancum killed Amalickiah with a dramatic javelin to the heart. The next morning was New Year's Day of the 26th year of the reign of the judges, and the Lamanites made Amron king. Amron declared that Jacob too was to be in charge of the east, and he left and headed back to the land of Nephi to inform the queen of the death of her second husband and to raise a second army to attack in the west. Jacob too did not conduct any more attacks. He maintained the cities that the Lamanites gained. Tiancum also conducted a strategic defense. I want to read how Tiancum saw his position in the theater and how Moroni directed Tiancum to conduct himself in the theater. I will alternatingly read and comment on the verses from Alma chapter 52 verses 5 to 11. Quote, and now Tiancum saw that the Lamanites were determined to maintain those cities which they had taken and those parts of the land which they had obtained possession of, and also seeing the enormity of their number, Tiancum thought it was not expedient that he should attempt to attack them in their forts. But he kept his men round about, as if making preparations for war. Yea, and truly he was preparing to defend himself against them, by casting up walls round about and preparing places of resort. Comment. Tiancum understood his broader environment, and knew that he was outnumbered, and that he couldn't attack his opponent so long as they remained in the defense. 
He also knew that the best way to keep the Lamanites in their fortifications was if they wanted to stay in their fortifications. So Teancum used deception to keep them there. He acted as if he had a larger force. He made sure his fighters were moving and being seen to be active. Continue quote. And it came to pass that he kept thus preparing for war until Moroni had sent a large number of men to strengthen his army. And Moroni also sent orders unto him that he should retain all the prisoners who fell into his hands. For as the Lamanites had taken many prisoners, that he should retain all the prisoners of the Lamanites as a ransom for those whom the Lamanites had taken. And he also sent orders unto him that he should fortify the land bountiful and secure the narrow pass which led into the land northward, lest the Lamanites should obtain that point and should have power to harass them on every side. Comment. Teancum was intended to defend the land and prevent the Lamanites from accomplishing their original objective, which we discussed in detail in episode 28 or part 6.3. Don't let the Lamanites control the narrow pass and get the land northward. Continue quote. And Moroni also sent unto him, desiring him, that he would be faithful in maintaining that quarter of the land, and that he would seek every opportunity to scourge the Lamanites in that quarter, as much as was in his power, that perhaps he might take again by stratagem, or some other way, those cities which had been taken out of their hands, and that he also would fortify and strengthen the cities round about, which had not fallen into the hands of the Lamanites." And he also said unto him, I would come unto you, but behold, the Lamanites are upon us in the borders of the land by the West Sea, and behold, I go against them, therefore I cannot come unto you. Close quote. And here we now are at the end of the 26th year of the reign of the judges in the eastern Nephite theater of war with Teancum, who commanded the Nephite forces from the land bountiful, who was tasked with protecting the narrow pass and preventing the Lamanites from surrounding the Nephites and waging war with them from every side. It is from this point that we will now move forward to discuss the battles around the city of Mulek. Geographical Setting Location This battle occurred between the city of Mulek and the land of Bountiful. Mulek is assumed to have been south of Bountiful and was close by the eastern seashore with a wilderness area to the inland or western side. The seashore is referred to as being down, which may simply have meant that the seashore was lower in elevation as it was probable that the seashore was the lowest point in this area. Both the seashore and the wilderness figure in the narrative of the battle. It is important to appreciate the strategic position of Mulek. The Nephite and Lamanite focus on this city was neither by accident nor simply out of stubborn pride. This was a city that caused every leader to consider taking it or retaking it. It must have controlled the movement corridor along the eastern seashore and so dominated it as to put out of question all attempts to bypass the city and attack another up or down the line. Terrain slash vegetation. There is limited description of the terrain. There is the use of the term down, as previously referenced. The use of the term wilderness should be construed as forest or heavy vegetation, sufficient to hide an army of thousands of men. There is also the use of the term plains, as given in Alma 5220. 
There must have been a large open area, possibly in terms of square kilometers and miles, between Bountiful and Mulek. It is unclear how this figures in the sense of whether the terrain was generally open or generally closed and full of wilderness. The nature of the battle plan seemed to rely on the fact that armies could be concealed and surprise a moving force through use of the terrain, but it was not sufficiently closed as to allow a simple ambush. The accompanying sketches show an open area to the northeast of Mulek as a place where the Lamanites camped when Amalekiah was killed. This seemed to be a place where battles naturally happened, as it must have allowed commanders some element of control over a larger force. Who was involved? Nephite forces. Initially, only Teancum commanded at Bountiful, and he was tasked with defending the existent Nephite possessions and later, as we are told in Alma 52.16, directed to attempt to retake the city of Mulek. Teancum did receive reinforcements relatively early in our story, as we read in Alma 52.7, while Moroni was organizing the forces in the south and west. This reinforcement probably gave Teancum the equivalent of two armies, one for defending Bountiful and the other for conducting the offensive operations Moroni preferred. We are told in Alma 52.17 that Teancum assessed the defenses and the size of the force at Mulek and determined that such an attack without reinforcements was unwise. More on this later. Moroni brought his army north to Bountiful at the end of the 27th year of the reign of the judges, and at the beginning of the 28th year of the reign of the judges, the Nephites held a commander's conference to discuss what to do in the east, in general, and with the city of Mulek in specific, as we are told in Alma 52.19. It is possible that this conference included Nephite commanders from both theaters, but more likely it was a meeting of leaders in the east of tribal contingent chief captains to conduct the necessary dialogue when dealing with tribal military societies so that the leaders could get a general consensus of action. They achieved a consensus and resolved to focus activities on the city of Mulek. From a Nephite perspective, this was a complex battle. It included a decoy force commanded by Teancum, as expressed in Alma 52.22, an assault and trailing force commanded by Moroni, as we are told in Alma 52.25-26, and a blocking force commanded by Lehi II, as given in Alma 52.27. The fact that all three commanders were present suggests the existence of at least three separate Nephite armies. Teancum is said to have led a small number of men, and Lehi too had a small army. In thinking about this, remember that Helaman too regularly referred to his army of 2,000 as small. Each of these brief descriptions gives reason to believe that either Teancum had only the semi-standard army size or less than the semi-standard army of 2,000 men. It is important to remember that Helaman too had 2,000, and the Lamanites thought that force was small enough to attack using a similar tactic as we discussed in our previous podcast episode. Lehi too might have had a similar sized force as Teancum, or about 2,000, or maybe fewer. Moroni clearly commanded a larger force. He had three missions, assault and capture the city of Mulek, defend the city against counterattack, attack and defeat the retreating Lamanite army. 
and he needed to have the force necessary to accomplish all three. It is probable that Moroni had at least two semi-standard armies with him, and possibly three. If these suppositions of size are accurate, then the Nephite force engaged in the field would have been somewhere around 8,000 to 10,000 warriors. In my mind, that is about 2,000 for Teancum, 2,000 for Lehi II, and 4,000 to 6,000 for Moroni. This does not include those who were certainly left behind to guard Bountiful. Moroni would not have gone into a battle this complex without having a competent spy network in place. Such a network certainly included those watching the city of Mulek and the roads to the other captured cities to the south, as well as spies to communicate the movement and location of the Lamanite army once it left Mulek to pursue Teancum. It is improbable that Moroni would fight this battle, especially as his role in fighting a moving-slash-retreating Lamanite army was crucial to the success of the battle without extensive spies throughout the area of operations. Lamanite Forces The Lamanite force was a remnant of the initial attacking Lamanite army. It is implied that Amaron did not take a significant amount of his army with him, when he left, as we are told that he, quote, gathered together a large number of men, close quote, from Alma 5212, which leads one to believe that the army Amaron had fighting in the west was a newly raised army and not the original army left at Mulek. Mormon tells us in Alma 524 that the Lamanites did have significant battlefield losses throughout their advance north so that the army at Mulek was a fraction of that which left the land of Nephi in the 25th year of the reign of the judges. I covered in some detail the army estimates for Amalekiah's wonderfully great army in episode 28, or part 6.3. The army that fought Teancum at the first battle of Bountiful was supposed to be about 6,000 to 12,000 strong. That army then suffered casualties in fighting Teancum, Given the fact that there was already a Lamanite garrison assumed to be at Mulek when that battle commenced, and the probability of some reinforcements, then the force that marched out of Mulek at the time of this battle must be assumed to be about the same size of 6,000 to 10,000. It should be expected that Jacob II also had a network of spies. It is stated in Alma 5222, that a group labeled as guards ran to inform Jacob II of Teancum's march. I believe that these guards were Lamanite spies. Clearly, Jacob II did not have the same spy network as did Teancum and Moroni because Moroni was able to hide a relatively large army without being detected. I want to make a final note here about Lamanite numbers. It is important to remember that this army of Lamanites marched out from their lands in the 25th year of the reign of the judges, and they fought this battle in the 28th year of the reign of the judges, meaning that they have been in Mulek for more than two years. There is a lot that we can imagine about this fact. Maybe the Lamanites rotated their fighters back home on a little rest and relaxation. Maybe the Lamanites brought the families of their fighters up to them. Maybe the Lamanite fighters were marrying Nephite women and creating new families. We don't know anything about these details, but I can only imagine growing displeasure among Lamanite fighters expected to defend a Nephite city for years. Maybe some of them were deserting. These suppositions would be useful if making a movie about the topic, but we will leave them for now. Key Leaders in the Battle Nephite Forces 
All of the Nephite commanders that fought in this battle have been discussed in previous episodes. Suffice it to say that by the time we get to this battle, they are all more experienced and none of them have ever personally commanded a losing army in the field. Moroni, Tiancum, and Lehi too were all winners, and the confidence that must have instilled in their warriors would have counted for a lot. Tiancum had also personally slain two opposing commanders in battle or in stealth. These men were certainly of legendary stature in their own time, as they commanded in an era of personal command presence being critical to battlefield success. Lamanite Forces Jacob II, Lamanite Army Commander of the City of Mulek It is assumed that Jacob II was the theater commander of all the Lamanites in the Eastern Theater. This assumption is based on a Nephite model and may therefore be flawed as the Lamanites seemed to have less cohesion and centralized control and seemed more tribal in nature. That said, Jacob II was a senior Lamanite commander. He was a Zoramite, which meant that he may have been involved in the previous battles at either Jershon or Manti in the 18th year of the reign of the judges. If that were the case, he would have been an oath-breaker, as his fighting with Amalekiah's army that started in the 25th year of the reign of the judges would have been contrary to an oath that he may have taken at the Battle of Manti. Mormon says in Alma 52.33 that Jacob II had an, quote, unconquerable spirit, close quote, and the fact that he chose to stay within the walls of his city rather than face the Nephites in an open field battle also communicates that he possessed wisdom and maturity of leadership. He was not a hothead, but a reasonable leader and battlefield commander. He was not a simpleton, nor was he a fool. It is important to remember this as the discussion continues, otherwise it is too easy to dismiss the complexity and brilliance of what follows. Grand Strategy Context The Amalekiahite War had become a two-front or two-theater war in the 26th year of the reign of the judges. Moroni arrived in Bountiful at the end of the 27th year of the reign of the judges. I am assuming that Moroni spent the best part of three years fighting the kingmen in the heart of the land of Zarahemla. His arrival in Bountiful signaled his willingness to take control of what must have been the most important theater of war. If my reading of the timeline of the Book of Mormon is correct, then Helaman II had already stopped the Lamanites north of Antipara. The Lamanites probably still controlled four cities in the west, with a significantly reduced force as their greatest army had been defeated. In the east, the Lamanites controlled six cities, and the most powerful army was still sitting in Mulek and refusing to come out to battle. The Lamanites in the east were only one success away from capturing the narrow pass and controlling the land on the south and the north of the Nephites. The east was clearly the greatest danger, and that is why Moroni traveled there once the kingmen were under control. In the earlier Battle of Bountiful, described in detail in episode 28 or part 6.3 that concluded on New Year's Day, of the 26th year of the reign of the judges, with Amron retreating with his army to Mulek, where he placed Jacob II in charge, and then Amron left the area to return to the land of Nephi and invade the west. Teancum was on his own at the First Battle of Bountiful, 
Moroni was fighting the kingmen, and Lehi too was probably with Moroni, though we are not told where he was until he shows back up in the record for the battle we are discussing in this episode. Teancum was given command in the east to direct events as he saw fit, and to retain all Lamanite prisoners that he could for a future prisoner exchange, as we are told in Alma 52 verse 8. All of this is important context for understanding why Moroni was driving to get a solution. He needed a victory to demonstrate to those who might have been disloyal and waiting to defect that the Nephite armies were in the ascendancy. Once again, this was a tribal-based army, and tribal loyalties were certain to play key roles in support and reinforcement. Theater Context the importance of the city of Mulek cannot be overstated. It sat in a critical position, and the Nephites could not regain other cities while operating from Bountiful without first capturing Mulek. Moroni certainly had a policy of recapturing all of the lost cities. He was not interested in simply maintaining the currently existing positions. In the 27th year of the reign of the judges, we are told of a series of actions the Nephite took in Alma 52, verses 15 to 17, quote, But behold, it came to pass in the twenty and seventh year of the reign of the judges that Teancum, by the command of Moroni, who had established armies to protect the south and the west borders of the land, and had begun his march toward the land bountiful, that he might assist Teancum with his men in retaking the cities which they had lost. And it came to pass that Teancum had received orders to make an attack upon the city of Mulek, and retake it if it were possible. And it came to pass that Teancum made preparations to make an attack upon the city of Mulek, and march forth with his armies against the Lamanites. But he saw that it was impossible that he could overpower them while they were in their fortifications. Therefore he abandoned his designs and returned again to the city Bountiful, to wait for the coming of Moroni, that he might receive strength to his army. Close quote. From this short passage, we learn that Moroni was on his way, and yet Teancum was still directed to take action. Maybe Moroni wanted to reinforce whatever success had happened. Teancum's actions are open for debate. It is unclear whether or not he attacked with or even took his army to Mulek. It says that Teancum made preparations to make an attack and march forth, not that he did march forth with his army. Possibly, Teancum's preparation included a detailed reconnaissance of Mulek's fortifications, or maybe even spy work inside Mulek itself, or maybe some combination. Regardless of whether he marched his army or simply relied on reconnaissance, surveillance, and intelligence, what happened is still labeled in my records as the Second Battle of Mulek. In that supposed non-battle battle, Teancum concluded that he couldn't take the city with the forces that he possessed. For those paying attention to my win-loss records, I actually record the Second Battle of Mulek as a loss against Teancum. Maybe that's unfair, as it really wasn't a battle. However, I apply the same logic when evaluating Lamanite commanders and their win-loss records. So, the Second Battle of Mulek, which once again wasn't really a battle, will end up being the only loss that is personally commanded by Teancum, Helaman II, Moroni, or Lehi II. 
the Nephites had to have the city of Mulek. And Jacob too must have known that as well. This meant that Moroni had to get his subordinate tribal leaders, most of whom go unnamed in the Book of Mormon, to understand the importance of taking Mulek as well. The council of war that is mentioned in Alma 52.19, held at the beginning of the 28th year of the reign of the judges, was probably designed to explain the situation and get agreement for a large battle to destroy the Lamanite army at Mulek. I want to read from Alma 52, 19-21, And in the commencement of the twenty and eighth year, Moroni and Teancum and many of the chief captains held a council of war, what they should do to cause the Lamanites to come out against them to battle or that they might by some means flatter them out of their strongholds, that they might gain advantage over them and take again the city of Mulek. And it came to pass, they sent embassies to the army of the Lamanites, which protected the city of Mulek to their leader, whose name was Jacob, desiring him that he would come out with his armies to meet them upon the plains between the two cities. But behold, Jacob, who was a Zoramite, would not come out with his army to meet them upon the plains. And it came to pass that Moroni, having no hopes of meeting them upon fair grounds, therefore he resolved upon a plan that he might decoy the Lamanites out of their strongholds. The fact that Moroni walked out of that meeting with a plan to send embassies requesting an open field battle had to be a compromise solution. This was Moroni's way of convincing the chief captains of the need for the risky plan that he had in mind. He had to prove that he couldn't get the Lamanite army out of the city's fortification any other way. Teancum had already seen the defensive position Jacob II held at Mulek, and therefore Moroni must have known that Jacob II would not willingly give up such strength. It is interesting that there seemed to be no need to convince the Nephites that they couldn't take Mulek by assault. Whatever experience and strength the Nephites had, it didn't include the ability to successfully assault a heavily fortified and well-defended city. Mormon uses the word flatter in verse 19, and this is crucial in understanding what the embassies of Moroni were trying to do. In this case, it is instructive to recount the story of the Assyrian siege in 701 BC from 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19 in the Old Testament of the Bible. Rabshakeh, the embassy of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up to the walls of Jerusalem and reviled the God of Israel and emphasized the strength of the Assyrians. He offered them reasons to come out and disclosed that if they did not, they would all be destroyed. The communications being yelled back and forth between the emissaries of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and the embassy of Sennacherib must have been heard by many and a public display made of this discourse to shame the people into submission. Moroni's embassy probably tried to emphasize the strength of Jacob II's army and all of their successes in the land to this point, the idea being to puff them up in their pride and use this to the Nephite advantage. It did not work. Moroni came up with another way to make this battle happen. A final point is that following the failure at flattering the Lamanites out of their strongholds, Moroni resolved upon a plan. I love that language. He was committed to a dangerous and challenging plan of action to draw Jacob II away from the protection that he enjoyed within the fortifications at Mulek. Operational Context 
To accomplish the plan upon which he had resolved, Moroni divided his force into three parts. Each part had a task and a purpose. I will give them in order of action. Moroni commanded the largest force. He also had three tasks. You will note some overlapping purposes. 1. Capture the city of Mulek and defeat the guard force there to prevent the Lamanite control of the city of Mulek. 2. Defend the city against future Lamanite attack or counterattack to prevent Lamanite control of the city of Mulek. Same purpose. 3. Find and destroy the Lamanite army in the field for the purpose of securing the city of Bountiful and the narrow pass to the land northward. Tiancum commanded what was probably the smallest force. He had a stated task and purpose that we know, and I will suppose a second task and purpose. 1. March down by the seashore, probably to act like he was trying to bypass Mulek and attack the city of Gid to the south, to draw out the Lamanite army, and then to march back toward the city of Bountiful, such that the Lamanite army followed in order to facilitate the surprise attack of Lehi II's army. And the second task that I suppose was to attack the Lamanites to allow Lehi II to block and possibly defeat the Lamanite army. The third force was commanded by Lehi II. He really had one main task with a couple of related subordinate tasks. The main task was to block the Lamanite approach to Bountiful and possibly defeat the Lamanite army. The subordinate tasks included shielding the army of Tiancum so that it could reach Bountiful and then following the retreating Lamanites and attack them in the rear, all in order to facilitate Moroni's army defeating the Lamanite army. I wanted to provide the nested tasks and purposes, much like how modern-day officers might look at it, and describe this battle because it was that interconnected. We don't have a lot of details on the vast majority of battles in the Book of Mormon, so it is unclear where the Third Battle of Mulek ranks in complexity. It seems to be the most complex battle in Nephite history. Both the battles of Manti and of Antipas's fall and later battles in the Malachite War did and will feature separated forces accomplishing separate tasks with nested purposes. But this battle features three separate moving forces and involves the attack and capture of a city as well as the finding fixing, and finishing of a moving enemy. Such a battle required an adequate and empathetic understanding of the Lamanite commander as well as tremendous trust between the three Nephite commanders. If any of them had failed, then two or more of the forces would have been badly mauled and possibly destroyed. This was their plan. Technical Context This battle features no new technical innovations. The only aspect that applies here is the sheer complexity of this operation, as I just stated. Tactical Events I remind the listener that the record of these events is in Alma chapter 52, verses 22 through 40. The tactical portion begins with Tiancum's movement along the seashore, as directed by Moroni. This movement was identified and the information reported to Jacob II. It is unclear what Jacob II thought of what was happening, but we are told that he led out the Lamanite army with the intent of destroying Tiancum's force. It is possible that the earlier embassies sent by Moroni had had some effect in terms of causing Jacob II to make a rash decision. Tiancum began a retreat back 
north along the seashore as he saw the Lamanite army coming out from the city. The retreat of the Nephites created one of the most common feelings in ancient warfare, the thrill of seeing the enemy break in defeat. This knowledge has motivated numerous armies over the millennia to attack with renewed vigor and energy and complete the destruction of their opponent. It has also led other armies to ignominious defeat as one commander dupes another with a fainted retreat. This technique was very old in the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean by the time Moroni was born. It might have been old in the Western Hemisphere as well, but Jacob II's warriors did not care as they felt the rush of excitement and charged after Teancum. It is certain that Moroni received some information from his spies that as soon as the army of Jacob II was out of sight of the city, he attacked. The text in Alma 52.24 says that his army did, quote, march forth into the city and take possession of it, close quote. This statement implies that there was no fight at the place of entrance and that Moroni was able to get in without a fight. Moroni's warriors did fight once in the city, and they, quote, slew all those who had been left to protect the city, yea, all those who would not yield up their weapons of war, close quote, as we are told in Alma 52.25. It does not seem that this fighting took very long. The text in verse 26 may even imply that Moroni left command of the fighting in the city to another as he simultaneously marched to accomplish his final task of destroying the army of Jacob too. It is likely that he did leave before that last opposing person was killed, as that could have taken a long time, and time was critical to Moroni in this battle. The Lamanites pursued with vigor until they were met by Lehi too and his army. In my mind, there is a gap in the story, as it is probable that Teancum's army joined with Lehi too to form a more formidable force to deter the Lamanites. The record does not say what Teancum did. The Lamanite chief captains were clearly concerned by the appearance of Lehi too and his force, and they and their warriors, quote, fled in much confusion, close quote, as we are told in Alma 52:28, back toward the city of Mulek. The Lamanites were weary and concerned by the fact that fresh forces had come up to oppose them. The comment on being weary explains a great deal about the speed of both Teancum's army and the army of Jacob too. They were not simply marching, but pushing themselves to the very limits of their abilities. The fact that the Lamanites had not left themselves any reserve energy to fight demonstrated a complete lack of mature leadership on the part of the Lamanites and a limited amount of experience for the individuals involved. Additionally, Jacob too had apparently moved without any spies at all, or they had all been killed by Moroni and his men, as Jacob too seems to have been surprised both by the arrival of Lehi too and Moroni on the battlefield. Moroni and his army arrived and seemed to have been in place when Jacob too and his army came into contact with it. One of my favorite details in this battle comes in verse 30, quote, Now Lehi was not desirous to overtake them till they should meet Moroni and his army, close quote. Lehi too maintained control of his men as they pursued the retreating Lamanite army, such that Lehi too and his army only attacked after contact was made between the Lamanites and Moroni's army. That is outstanding command discipline. The Lamanites were surrounded by the armies of Moroni and Lehi. 
Moroni ordered the attack, and Jacob too led a significant charge and effort that caused many to be slain on both sides. The Lamanites were completely oriented on Moroni and his force, and the army of Lehi too was able to attack them in the rear and sow even greater confusion into their ranks. The casualties included a wounded Moroni and a killed Jacob too. The confusion caused by Lehi II's attack gave Moroni the opportunity to again demonstrate his compassion and control as he gave those left the opportunity to surrender. The prisoners were taken to Bountiful, and they were more than the number slain on both sides. These men would serve as a labor force to make Bountiful one of the most, if not the most, fortified Nephite city. Moroni placed Lehi II in command of this strategic city, as we are told in Alma 53, verse 2, with the supposition that Teancum remained in command of the forces in Bountiful. Battlefield Leadership In this section, I want to address five points of Nephite leadership, and then I will contrast them with similar, though often opposing, examples of Lamanite leadership. 1. The first thing Moroni did was to consult with the chief captains. He tried to bring everyone in on the plan and make it a Nephite plan of action rather than Moroni's plan. 2. Public embassies sent to Jacob. The flattery or modern-day equivalent trash-talking done by these embassies seemed to have an impact on the course of the actual fighting. In sending embassies, Moroni was not simply conceding to a compromised course of action, but he was shaping his future battlefield through the attempt to have a more fair and straightforward fight. 3. The complexity of the Nephite plan meant that personal heroic leadership was not only necessary, but crucial to the success of the endeavor. The selection of the three commanders in this battle was purposeful and directly related to the success of the Nephites. Each man was a proven combat winner, and Moroni had faith in both Teancum and Lehi too, as they had served him successfully in previous campaigns. Moroni selected trusted subordinates and then delegated significant responsibility to each. 4. Moroni always knew where the Lamanite army was. This was probably accomplished through the use of spies, but Mormon does not clarify the use or non-use of spies. Moroni was able to encircle an opponent because he knew where the opponent was and, at the same time, he denied the same information to his opposing commander. 5. Again, Moroni ordered a halt to killing, just as the Lamanite army looked ready to break. Time and again, the message of Moroni is that fighting isn't about killing. In general, Moroni demonstrated once again his great grasp of empathetic understanding of his opponent. He knew how the Lamanites would react, and his plan was crafted to take maximum advantage of that knowledge. The Lamanite lessons are just as important, possibly because they are often on opposite sides of the same coin. 1. Avoid succumbing to pride. In reading the story of this battle, it seems that some of the Lamanite chief captains were influenced by the flattering words of the embassies from Moroni. Maybe they felt their battlefield prowess was challenged or that their manhood was questioned. Regardless of how it affected them, they overreacted when an opportunity presented itself. In contrast, Jacob too, who so wisely declined the offer of an open field battle, was suckered into leading the majority of his army after a much smaller Nephite force in a vain hope of getting an easy victory 
as if he needed to appease the demands for battle of his subordinates. 2. Finding a balance between initiative and control. From the time Jacob II led his army out of Mulek after Teancum's army, it seemed that Jacob II was not in control of the battle. Maybe he ordered the pursuit of the fleeing army of Teancum, but if he did, he soon lost control of it. He failed to measure the speed and control of the pursuit, and thus his warriors were exhausted when they neared Bountiful. This was only exacerbated by the appearance of Lehi II and his army, and the uncontrolled flight of the Lamanites that ended in their being surrounded. In pursuing opportunity, there needs to be a measure of control. In one of my earlier books, Piercing the Fog of War, I address recommendations for preparing for and functioning in an aberrational environment. One of those recommendations is to have multiple reserves. When pursuing opportunity, have a reserve, whether that be a reserve of energy, money, people on whom you can call for assistance, a reserve. Jacob too did not have such. 3. Jacob too failed to maintain any awareness of his total situation. He had no idea what was happening around him. He did not know the fate of his city, that a Nephite army was marching upon him from the south, or that his pursuit was moving into a trap. The complete blindness of this entire operation speaks to a lack of spies at any level. Jacob, too, probably had no intention of leaving Mulek on his own, and he therefore had not created any supporting spy structure in the Nephite camp or in the land around his own city. This may also have been the result of his army being an occupying army in a hostile land. Significance The capture of Mulek opened opportunities to continue the Nephite reconquest to the south. Without Mulek, nothing good for the Nephites was going to happen in the eastern theater. The Lamanite prisoners taken were instrumental in making Bountiful a nearly impregnable city, and the defeat of Jacob II removed a competent opposing commander. Despite the success at Mulek, another campaigning season came before the next attack was made on a Lamanite-held city. This may have been the result of battlefield losses and limited reinforcements. Mormon tells us in Alma 52.35 that there were many slain on both sides and that Moroni was wounded. Each of the subsequent attacks on Lamanite-held cities in the Eastern Theater involved some level of subterfuge and cunning on the part of Moroni. At about this point in the land of Zarahemla, the kingmen were gaining influence again, and there may have been some impediment in the proper flow of reinforcements into the theaters of war. This will come to a head in the 29th year of the reign of the judges, as we will see. Lessons Learned Military History The most significant lessons revolve around empathy and delegation. I have said this before. I do not think it's possible to say it too much. Moroni is probably the single greatest example of empathy used in combat. I so wish I had the freedom to use Moroni as an example in my civilian job, but I have yet to figure out how to do that properly. So let's start with identification. Moroni once again demonstrated his ability to see the battlefield through the eyes of his opponent. He could empathize with that opponent and then know what they would do and why. This provided him with a tremendous advantage over any opposing ground commander. Moroni knew how Jacob II would react to first Teancum's force and then to Lehi II's force. He placed his pieces appropriately, including spies, 
and he denied his opponent the same ability to understand the battlefield. Isolation. The use of three forces to surround the Lamanite armies meant that from the moment Jacob II left Mulek, he was isolated. There was not going to be any assistance. Suppression. The total surrounding of the force and the use of physical exhaustion meant that Jacob II only had a mob at the end and not an army that he could order. This is one of many references where the Lamanites still seemed to be fighting as a single body of warriors rather than dividing into separate, independently controlled groups. This may be an issue of control and training, or one of trust. Maneuver Moroni used separate forces to demonstrate some of the most impressive maneuver in the Book of Mormon. This is similar to his use of multiple forces in the Battle of Manti to effectively surround another Lamanite army. As noted, the Lamanites probably moved in a single group without subordinate, mutually supporting units. They had a front and a back, and once the force turned, it was difficult to turn any portion of it in a significant way. Thus, they could be attacked in the rear while the enemy there was a known entity. Destruction There is evidence of significant loss of life on both sides, but it is clear that the army of Jacob II was destroyed as a fighting force and erased from the Lamanite battle roster. Moroni was able to accomplish the destruction through the use of fresh forces to always place strength against weakness, rested warriors against exhausted ones. He also used the complexity of the battle to sow confusion and tear at the will of his opponent before blows were struck. When the Lamanites were finally surrounded, they only had the option of a berserker-like charge into the face of a trained and ready army. Lessons Learned Spiritual What is to be learned from the details of this campaign? I hope that the following lessons are useful. I want to emphasize that these are some lessons that I have derived, and they are not a comprehensive list of all possible lessons or even the most applicable for you in your life as you listen to this. 1. Deceive your opponent. Satan doesn't know what you think. He doesn't know if you are truly strong or truly weak. He only knows what he sees and hears. Therefore, don't let him see or hear your weakness. Like Tiancum, let your enemy see your preparations for the attack. Let him think that you are stronger and more powerful than you feel. 2. Invite. Don't be afraid to invite your friends or opponents to do what you want them to do. One of my favorite quotes comes from Canadian hockey legend Wayne Gretzky, who said, You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Take the shot. Ask the question. The worst they can say is no. Moroni asked Jacob II to come out to battle. Jacob II said no. Then Moroni moved on. 3. Know your enemy. This doesn't have to be personal. Know the options that are open to your opponent. How might Satan attack the person you're trying to help? How might Satan attack you? What are your weaknesses? Part of knowing your enemy involves knowing yourself. Moroni knew that Jacob II wanted to prevent attacks to the south, and he also knew that Jacob II knew that Moroni needed to get to the south. By sending Tiancum in such a way that he appeared to be sneaking to the south, or circumventing the Lamanite defenses, Jacob too thought he knew what was happening. This comes from knowledge. 
The ideal form of knowledge comes from and through association with the Holy Ghost. 4. Flee to a place of safety. This is the single biggest difference between this battle and the battle of Antipas' fall. When Teancum runs from the Lamanite army, he is running toward Bountiful and the army of Lehi too. Even if Lehi too wouldn't have been there, Teancum would have reached Bountiful first. When fleeing Satan and his minions go toward where it is safe, holy places, trusted and powerful friends. 5. Have an unconquerable spirit. This was a description for Jacob too, but I think was also true of Moroni, Lehi too, Teancum, and Helaman too. These people did not give up, even in the face of defeat. I believe it is the reason why we have so much detail on these four men, as they are the example of the behaviors we want. 6. Surround your opponent. I have mentioned this many times already. I simply want to point out yet again that Mormon is emphasizing it. If there is one lesson from all of the military aspects of the Book of Mormon, it is this lesson. We will see it again and again in future episodes. Mormon's metaphor. How does this battle support it? Preparation. This story includes preparation in the form of a meeting, an invitation, a plan, and coordinated action between competent leaders. Covenants. Covenants are not expressly mentioned in the story, but I believe that they are an important part of the story. 1. Each commander had to believe that he could trust the actions and commitments of the other commanders. Each one of the armies could have been destroyed absent such a belief. It may have been true that no stated covenants were made and that the agreements between the men were implied. Regardless, there was a commitment between these three great commanders that they would not be left alone. I think of that as a covenant. 2. Moroni stops the slaughter of Lamanite fighters as soon as possible, and the Lamanite surrender implies an agreement between the captured and the captors, a covenant, if you will. Unity. Like with Manti and Antipas' fall, and with Zenith and other battles to come, unity is not about physical position. We don't have to literally stand together to be united. Moroni, Lehi too, and Teancum are a band of brothers who have each other's backs and who operate with such trust that they can do something that is inherently risky because of their unity of understanding, planning, and commitment. They are powerful examples of the principle of unity. In this story, unity starts in a meeting. A lot of people don't seem to like meetings. They can be very useful as a tool for developing unity in planning and understanding. Conclusion The hallmark of Moroni was his ability to effectively set the stage for success. In the warfare of the ancient battlefield, there was always the issue of closing with and hacking at the enemy until they no longer wanted to fight. This meant that a determined enemy could always inflict casualties, regardless of the quality of the plan. Despite the berserker-like attacks of Lamanite commanders, Moroni remained calm and in control when faced with a desperate and unwinnable situation, in part because Moroni created his opponent's desperation through his tremendous planning and preparation and his ability to see the battle as his opponent would see it. 
All of this was done through his vision and the quality subordinate commanders who were steadfast in fulfilling commands. He knew he could trust them, and therefore he could plan accordingly. The next episode returns to the Western Theater and Helaman II's challenges in regaining the lands lost to Amaron's armies. The episode features an analysis of the second and third battles of Kumani and a discussion on whether or not the sons of Helaman, or the 2000 stripling warriors, fought in formation. I recommend that you read ahead and refer to Alma chapter 57 verses 7 to 23. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>